Welcome to the One Away Show, presented by BW Missions. I am Brian Wish, and I am your host, and thanks so much for being here. On this show, I sit down with compelling entrepreneurs, authors, and rising leaders to talk through their most transformative relationships, experiences, and epiphanies. Curated with entrepreneurial leaders in mind, we'll dig into these finite moments in people's lives and understand how they helped set their path forward. Gary Carmel is president and partner of CWS Capital Partners, an investment management firm with a $4 billion plus apartment portfolio. Along with his two partners, Gary is focused on creating wealth over long periods of time without taking excessive risk. Gary joined CWS in 1987 and is responsible for all aspects of acquisition financing, debt and equity, high-level communications, and is significantly involved in the company's strategic direction and capital deployment. He has an MBA from USC and Bachelor of Arts degree in political science from UCLA, a degree that he believes gives him a unique perspective in his profession. As a young man, Gary was drawn to California by family vacations, UCLA basketball, and his passion for the Grateful Dead. When his girlfriend gave him the option of moving to California with her or breaking up, Gary followed her to the Golden State and started a career in real estate investment. Gary is the author of The Philosophical Investor, Transforming Wisdom into Wealth, a collection of lessons learned and wisdom drawn from his 30-plus years of professional experience and filtered through his unique right-brain perspective. Gary runs a weekly blog at GaryCarmel.com, where he reflects on topics on personal and professional development current events and more gary welcome to the one away show thank you brian my pleasure to be here yeah it's great it's great to have you here and uh really enjoyed our first conversation and uh yeah found a lot of deep connections so uh we're doing this um what what was uh what's the one away moment that you want to start us out with today i would say uh, as i reflect on it um i grew up in the midwest and uh, in the Chicago area. And I was the youngest of four. The next youngest sibling was about five years older. So I was, um, and sometimes I felt like I had five parents. And then when they all went away, I had a lot of independent time and times that I enjoyed trying to figure out, you know, what I liked and what I didn't like. And as I was growing up, we would uh, often vacation in California. And uh, in high school, I became uh, somewhat of a follower, which wasn't quite un- wasn't that unusual with my peer group, but uh, of the Grateful Dead. <laughs> so I became a deadhead, and uh, that led me to uh, travel around, particularly around the Midwest, to follow them during their summer tours. And and from there, there was always this California vibe and connection with them. And so there was this combination of embarking on my own journey wanting to find my own path and follow the road less traveled with having grown up in vacation in California, was also a big fan of uh, UCLA basketball under John Wooden. And so a lot of uh, the universe was conspiring me to send me West when, when no one was going there really from my high school and very, maybe one other person might've been going to UCLA if, if one at all in my graduating class. So, so it was really on my own, and that was something that I was looking forward to. It, it sounds like the Grateful Dead was a was a big part of your kind of where, where you had identity or, or gave you a sense of home. Uh, what was it about their not that where they were from, but maybe about their music or the types of 
communities they built around them. Like, well, what, what did the deadhead community embody for you? What, what drew you to the music? If you could recall and or how it made you feel or how it inspired you. I'm just curious. Right. So it's, it's very typical when you would go to a concert and you would see a band, like I was a big who fan and I love to see the who, and you would normally want to see their greatest hits. Right. And, uh, as they're, they're, they're the greatest hits for a reason. The Who was somewhat known for never changing their set list like over years. <laughs> so if you saw one show, you know, the next, and you happen to see another show, it would be pretty much the same. The Dead, on the other hand, uh, never repeated a show, I think, in their history. And so I really appreciated their independence, that they did what felt right to them, and the community followed. And so if you are convicted, convicted or you have a high degree of conviction and belief in what you do and love what you do and you're delivering value to people i i think you will find the audience for that and they happen to be at the right place in the right time and very unique moments in history but that whole notion that uh sort of like our relationship is i saw them i think 35 times which sounds like a lot but in the, in the world of the deadheads it's, it's really not much the, the beautiful thing about a long-term relationship are the nuances of that relationship. You know, the obvious things, the things on the surface that is, are like the greatest hits that gets boring after a while. But when you're at a show and there's a mistake and, you know, that's okay, you know, that's very human, or they do something completely unexpected, or they go in a very improvisational way, which is what they were known for, and they take you to a place that uh, you hadn't experienced before, and you've kind of do that together as a community, and then you have that common experience and you can talk about it. Well, that to me is, is what is powerful about relationships in life. So you develop this very unique relationship with that band and the people in that community. So it's not this sort of greatest hits transactional thing, you know, kind of wham, bam, thank you, man, move on. And so that's what I liked. I was sort of, uh, it was an ever evolving, ever growing uh, set of experiences. And you never know what you would encounter on that journey and who you would meet and uh, what you would experience at the shows. Yeah. Wow. That's really, uh, I mean, it has so much application to life and so much applications, like just how you move through the world. And, and just one more question there, and we'll, we'll continue this track, but um, like when you, when you were growing up, right, did you, did you feel you had an escape or uh, lived in an environment or surrounded by parents and brothers and sisters that like, there was that constant evolution to be around people who like sought, sought out that independence or was, it was like the Grateful Dead, that first experience with, wow, here's where, like, here's what independence actually looks like. When I was growing up, it was, uh, it was somewhat common for kids to go to overnight camp. People think in hindsight that I was I was abused, but I went away to camp, I think ages 10, 11, and 12 for eight weeks, which people are like, wow, how could you send a kid away for that longer period of time? But that was a great opportunity and a blessing. So, and I grew up in a time pre-internet, pre-cell phone. And so we were, we were able to just go outside our house, play sports, hang out with our friends, and we weren't micromanaged. People, our parents didn't know where we were. Uh, not that we were up to no good by any means. It's just that, uh, you know, they didn't just said be home by dinner. And particularly in the Midwest when the weather was pretty volatile and 
you know, winters were tough, you would really appreciate uh, the summers and the springs and you would spend a lot of time outdoors and connecting with your friends. So I think that environment that I grew up in and then having gone off to camp and having had older siblings and kind of watch what they did and how they found their paths and some of the decisions they made and the ways they improved their lives that uh, that rubbed off on me, you know, good. I won't say bad, but I mean, Hey, Hey, these are things that uh, resonate with me and these are things that maybe don't, and maybe I want to avoid and, and do differently. Yeah. So neat. Well, it's neat that you were able to, um, have those perspectives, right. To maybe shape the things that you wanted early, things you didn't want to maybe give you a connection point with, with the band and uh, the community that surrounded itself with. So, so back to, I would just say also, they were the, probably the first open source business model out there because they let uh, tapers tape their shows with no questions asked. They set up taper sections. And so from those, those tapes would get widely distributed and there was no charge for them. So it was so, you know, exciting when you found a source that had tapes from the latest shows and you saw the set list and you were eager to hear it. It was before the internet and before digitization. So there was something to look forward to. And so the band just felt like, hey, they didn't want to be cops. They didn't want to police things. And it just turned out in hindsight that they grew the market much bigger than they otherwise would because they got the word out. People were really uh, intent on seeing them you know, when they came to town or following them on tour. So it became a very powerful economic ecosystem as well wow. as a social one. That's a beautiful distribution strategy. It, it was purely unintentional, but uh, it worked. So, <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure they could have stopped it or, or tried to, but uh, it seems like a dream come true. Uh, wow, super cool. I'm sure you uh, had some fun uh, distributing slash buying in uh, the tape. Never collection. buying. Never had to buy. Always free. As long as you provided the blank tapes, Oh, you would get them from the tapers or your, your connection. Oh, 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 oh. That was, I, yeah. Got it. Okay. Well, still very cool. That's so fun. My, my stepfather, you guys would get along. He knows he <laughs> loves music of the, the times. And uh, I have to tell, I have to talk to him about this. So um, cool. Well, Gary. Um, okay. So you, you kind of found this independence and uh, you, you were in high school, you know, you grew up in the Midwest and kind of got to this point in, um, you know, it was time to figure out kind of, where you wanted to be, you know, you had to draw to the West. How did that influence academic decisions uh, in post, post high school life? Well, a lot of uh, people in my family were uh, attorneys. And so, and actually they convinced me I did not want to be an attorney, but what they tended to, the skill set they had were, they were very strong writers and communicators and, um, you know, had an ability to obviously make an argument and defend that position. And so some of the advice I got was, hey, you can always go to business school or something more technical as in graduate from, from a graduate standpoint. But why don't you learn to think critically, have a diverse liberal arts background as an undergrad, learn how to write, communicate, and those skills will serve you well. And you can top those off with something more technical. So that that resonated with me. So a common path was to become a political science major to uh, get that kind of background. So that's that's what I did. 
and uh, I took a few economics courses and accounting courses. And as time went on, I, I, I was in college from 83 to 87 and the stock market was booming. I mean, we think it's booming now, but it was a real boom time then. A lot of the things that are taking place, the precursor of all those things are, took place in the 80s. Uh, with venture capital, private equity, leveraged buyouts, the uh, stock market boom, uh, quantitative investing, et cetera, et cetera. So I started getting more interested in the financial markets and um, how things worked in the economy. And so that I, I started setting my sights on something in that arena. So when I was uh, a rising, uh, towards the end of my junior year, I met uh a woman who would become my wife and she was a year ahead of me. And so that was a, you know, seminal moment. Uh, so I end up Midwest, you know, pulled to the West for many reasons that we talked about. And then while I'm there, this kind of shy, awkward, geeky guy ends up meeting this, you know, more sophisticated, uh, lovely person. And so from there, we, uh, she went off to Europe in that summer. And I went back to Chicago. And so then when it came time for my senior year, I was, you know, went back to UCLA and she grew up in uh, south of Los Angeles in Orange County. And so she went back to her home and she started a, a career in retail and we stayed connected during that senior year. And so when it came time to graduating, she said, uh, you know, where do you want to work? Because she's, uh, she said to me, you know, I'm, I'm, she knew I was from Chicago, of course, she goes, so I'm not going to Chicago. So if you want to stay together, you have to move to Orange County. So <laughs> I thought about it for about five seconds. And I said, oh, okay, I, you know, this is a, this sounds like a good option. I go, I don't know anyone in Orange County. I have no no connections. And she said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I'd like to manage stocks and bonds and be in the investment management business. She said, um, okay, well, there's an area in Newport Beach, which is, a home to many financial firms called Fashion Island. It's a beautiful mall with a lot of businesses there surrounding it. And uh, so why don't you go walk around to these companies with your resume and just uh, see if you can, you know, finagle an interview. Like, all right, well, got nothing better to do. Newport Beach is beautiful. It was, uh, you know, probably a lovely June day. And so I walked into one of the buildings or the first building I walked into there's a list of uh, the building tenants on the wall when you buy the elevator. And so it said Clayton Williams and Sherwood Inc., an investment management firm, suite 400. So I go to the, take the elevator, go to the fourth floor, find their suite. And then I go up to the receptionist and I ask her, are you guys hiring? And she goes, I think so. So I wrote down on my resume, interested in a financial analyst position. And uh, so I leave the resume and then I go to about three or four other firms in different buildings. And then I didn't get the same welcome response from the other receptionists. They were like, what are you doing? No one does this. This is kind of weird, kind of creepy, crazy. Why? <laughs> no one just drops off a resume. So I was a little defeated after that. I felt a, a little embarrassed, but so I went home and she asked how it went. I said, well, you kind of threw me to the to the lions. It was it was kind of humiliating. She goes, well, you never know what's going to come up about from that. And what's the downside? I go, yeah, you're right. But it's just, you know, nothing's going to happen. So 
whatever, a week goes by and I, I get a call from the first firm I went to, which was Clayton Williams and Sherwood. And it's from the HR person. And uh, she said that they want to interview me. And I said, what do you guys do again? And she said, real estate. I said, oh, well, I've always wanted to be in real estate. <laughs> <laughs> so this was 1987. I go through the interview process and um, I actually get the job and I start working. I remember it on July 20th, 1987. And my first boss was, uh, I think he had an engineering background and he sits me down or he says, here, gives me a book on how to, uh, how to learn Lotus one, two, three, which was the precursor to Excel. And he goes, learn, you know, figure it out. He goes, and by the way, he found out, he knew I was a political science major. He goes, what were you going to do? Open, open up a political science store? I said, no, no. So I was already getting harassed and a little demeaned on my first, you know, first day or two there. But, but fast forward to today and I'm still with the firm 34 years later. I'm, I'm one of the partners there. And, um, uh, I've spent my entire career in real estate. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, uh, who, who would have thunk it? Committed, loyal, clearly uh, wanted to figure it out, who, who learned Lotus, I'm sure, and Excel thereafter. Yes. Uh, so, uh, Gary, I mean, meeting your wife uh, at UCLA seemed to be a, you know, a moment that helped give life a lot of clarity as well. Um, I'm just curious, you know, being being in college, right? Uh, I know times were different back then. People made lifelong decisions earlier. But what 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 did you see maybe in her to say, you know what, this, this might be someone to move across, you know, stay stay in California, not move back home, and you know, figure out life with. Uh, I'm just curious if you can take us back to the early days. Yeah, I, she had a lot of qualities that. Um, at least at the time early on, I didn't didn't have or didn't feel I had. She was very uh, ambitious in a healthy way, uh, courageous that uh, she didn't let fear get in the way of her pursuing what she thought was right or what she wanted to do. Had a very joyful spirit, just a fun person to be around. We shared many of the same values and cultural background. And she came from you know, a really nice family, very fun family. So just someone who I thought if uh, I was young and she was probably my first real meaningful relationship. So I, I was hitching my tail to her wagon and uh, <laughs> I, I just intuitively knew it was the right thing to do it was probably faster than I was expecting or, or thinking at my age. Uh, but I just knew that uh, she would probably hold me accountable in life and make me a better version of myself. And that one plus one could be three. And mm. that, uh, you know, that I could, she was very type A uh, at times. And um, I was, you know, more laid back. And I think between us, we ended up, um, you know, making good decisions and raising kids together and having a very uh, eventful, adventurous life. That was a lot, a lot of fun. Wow. So neat to hear you uh, speak in such a beautiful way and memories uh, that you shared. 
and uh, can see why those qualities make sense for a long-term partnership, uh, one that you followed your intuition on. Um, something that well, you they, they say a good a good friend stabs you in the front, and she was relentless or ruthless about doing that if she saw something that uh, she she didn't like. So, a good friend stabs you in the front. Mm-hmm. Huh. Like gives it to you straight. No, I I, I know <laughs> like that that lands pretty good, right? Um, mm-hmm. Versus the alternative. Gary, as you as uh, you know, when I when I reached out, I, I noticed this just reflective and intuitive sense with you, like just prior to like meeting you. And then when we first started talking, and I, I was spot on in that, but you were spot on in replying and like just seeing where it would go. And um it's pretty clear that you you have a knack for following intuition, having a knack for knowing. And uh I'm just curious how you channel that or tune into that or are aware of that to kind of steer you. Uh, and it's, it seems like that's been the case in a lot of the things you've done in your life. So I'm just curious how you'd answer that. I know it's not a crystal ball answer, but yeah, I am intrigued. Yeah. I think um, there's, I think it was Kierkegaard. who said something like that life, is lived forward, but it's understood backwards, but we make decisions in real time. And so I, I guess I've thought a lot about thinking <laughs> a lot. And so I've tried to reflect on models. Well, people often look to, you know, very successful people and try to emulate them, which is very understandable, but it's also not everyone knows what they want in life, but I think a lot of people know what they don't want in life. So if you can be clear about that and try to avoid that, <laughs> I think that's very helpful. That's that's a good good filter. So um, you know, I didn't. I see people who are sort of slaves to their emotions, or maybe have need to numb themselves maybe more than they they should, or they're not very considerate or respectful or kind to others. And so I, you know, I'll see things that. Uh, that aren't modeled very well, and they don't get the outcomes that they want in life. So it doesn't serve them. But but in, in kind of going back and answering your question, because as, hey, we're all dealing with everything's easy in hindsight, right? What are you gonna do in the moment? That's why I, I sometimes question, this is a little controversial, I'm going off on a tangent, but sometimes the value of therapy for some people, because what I have, my, my senses and experiences that you don't always, you, you bring a different self to that interaction. So, but when you go out to the real world and then you're triggered by something that, you know, your fear, your greed, your insecurities, whatever it might be, that's, you're no longer in that protective cocoon environment. So I'm always going to ask, what are you going to do? What do you, what do you do? What did you do? What are you going to do? Why'd you do it? But it's, but that's really in the moment. It's, it's easy to intellectualize and to, to talk about it, it's hard to actually do something that uh, maybe goes against your grain. So I've tried to be cognizant of my own fallibilities, my insecurities, my lapses in judgment, and surround myself with people that hopefully can help um, create some clarity for me in terms of blind spots that I may have. Mm-hmm. But I would say that part of I don't know if it's success or whatever it is, what's worked for me is having a bit of a narrow focus in terms of how my intuition 
has been channeled and played out. So I think carefully about my work. I started at a time where the company was 18 years old. Now it's 52 years old and had a, a great deal of success. But actually, after I started, things started uh, really going backwards uh, for many different reasons. So I was really intrigued. I, I, I couldn't blame myself because I was so new. <laughs> but what was it that uh, people at the firm missed? And I'm not saying it critically because many, many people missed it. What did you know, what did the what did the industry miss? What did whatever it was? So, so I really try to understand cause and effect, and uh, you know what what can lead something. You know, there's errors of optimism, there's errors of pessimism. You think the good times are always going to continue. You think the bad times always continue. So I really tried to become a student and a curious mind about how this business works, how to avoid the pitfalls, and where one can take advantage of opportunities. And it's always evolving and always changing. So in my field, in my particular little niche in real estate, um, I would gravitate to things that would help me make a, become a better decision maker and influencer. Um, not the modern day influencer, but an influencer in the firm in terms of the, decision, the direction that we go, avoiding uh, un uncompensated risk and taking advantage of highly compensated opportunities. So that was that aspect. And then we're able to, uh, my wife and I were able to, to channel that in a, in a personal way to personal real estate decisions that we would make, you know, leaping on opportunities to, you know, buy this piece of real estate and, um, you know, build up a little bit of a portfolio there. So they're, they're correlated, of course, because what I learned in my business at CWS, could, it was easily applicable to, um, the personal portfolio, but um, my wife was a very talented retailer at Nordstrom. So she really understood the consumer mind and how to merchandise. And so if we'd run out of property, she had a profile of a customer that she really wanted that she thought it would be great for. She knew how to price things. So it was a really good um, symbiotic uh, relationship there. So there's sort of the work focus, you know, kind of the personal finance focus. And, and what I realize is for me, in my personal investing, I actually like these pieces of real estate because I have relationships with the people that occupy them. So this is a sort of a recent insight. It's more fun, more interesting, more rewarding. A lot of people don't like being landlords. I get it. I try to take a boutique approach and you know, own kind of boutique quality properties that attract a certain type of clientele that very, very much value that. And it's kind of rewarding to see how beneficial it can be that they can live there and, and have nice memories created. So, so that area, um, you know, has been effective in, in some ways. And then I would say, you know, with the kids, uh, I have a, a son and a daughter and uh, just really trying to be in tune with, you know, their talents, uh, you know, maybe some of their blind spots and just trying to help guide them uh, in ways that, um, you know, deliver deep satisfaction for their lives and they can keep on growing. And then um, travel, just being around interesting people and just expanding one's mind, reading a lot. And then at the end of the day, you never know when lightning is going to strike and that intuitive light bulb is just going to go off. 
Yeah, it resonates a lot with uh, just personal period right now. And so it, it's neat how I've never heard someone describe intuition, you know, as a culmination of perspectives from different walks of life. And, and I, but it makes sense though, right? Because if I'm putting myself in your shoes and how you might be interpreting it, like there's a lot of data points you can pull from where you can arrive on a decision uh, that might be a better one or that might intuitively feel right because you have a lot more factors at your disposal to make a decision off of. Um, a question. Yeah, that, I would say that, that that avoids what Charlie Munger refers to as the man with a hammer syndrome, where you only have one tool in your toolbox, which is a hammer. So every problem looks like a nail. So I, I would say that if I think back on what, what ingredients have gone into the recipe of decisions or insights that I've had that have helped move the, the company forward, have rewarded our investors with, you know, compelling rates of return, um, or reflecting on mistakes we've made and learning from them. In no particular order, there's economics, there's psychology, there's demographics, there's sociology, there's politics, there's geopolitical, there is just human interaction, there's communication. It's it's just you need many tools in your, your tool chest, not that you can become an expert in all of them, but it just broadens one's mind where it's not all just the numbers and what appears on the spreadsheet. It's, you know, what are the trends? You know, why are people moving where they're moving? Why are they making the decisions where they're making, uh, you know, or that they're making? Why are we in a bubble? Is there too much, too much greed, not enough fear? You know, what are the financial flows that are taking? There's a lot, a lot of stuff that goes into it. Hey, and a lot of it, fortunately, what I like about my, my business is it's somewhat slow moving. I mean, in the sense that like, I mean, we can buy a property and own it for 10, 15, 20 years. We don't always have to be trading. So continuing to do what we do is a decision in and of itself. Mm. So staying the course is a decision. So, uh, you know, people don't realize that, but it is. And so we don't. So a lot of what I do is just saying, hey, I think we're we're OK. Continuing to do what we're going to do. We don't have to be trigger happy and just, you know, sell X, Y and Z just because we're bored or feel like we have to do something now just hanging on can be a, a great decision hmm. it's pretty pretty uh deep for sure uh still like holding on is a decision within a decision right <laughs> yeah uh it just it, some so just for context if i if i recall your fascination with let's just say pattern recognition cause and effect happened when the firm started going downhill because you were able to really dig in and start asking some of the questions and understanding maybe holistically the factors that played into it, kind of learning that you, it was transferable, it sounds like, to being applied to every aspect of your life. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I, I, it was one of those going back to, hey, what, what do you want out of life? Well, I'm not quite sure. I know what I don't want is to have financial challenges with some uh, a number of our properties and to be dealing with investors that have entrusted us with their hard-earned capital that they were looking to us to maybe help fund school for their kids, you know, medical care, retirement, 
maybe an addition to their home, uh, charitable endeavors, whatever it may be, that they weren't looking to us to uh, impair their capital. They were looking to us to uh, in, keep it safe and to grow it. And so I never, I'm like, okay, now that this happened, hey, hey, the only way out is through. So we had to deal with it. And so we dealt with it courageously and my partners were incredibly courageous and all the problems got worked out. All the you know investors were incredibly happy. So it turned around, but I'm like, okay, what can we learn from this? So there was things I learned there. And then another cycle happened and we found ourselves uh, stuck in a position where it's very common among real estate owners. And I probably should say I'm in the real estate business. <laughs> we own apartments around the country kind of, um, and so we have, well, when I started with the firm, we were in manufactured housing or mobile home parks. We were actually one of the larger owner operators of mobile home parks in the country. In the late eighties, we started getting into apartments. So when I started, we had something like $250 million of mobile home parks. Today, we have over 30,000 apartment units, probably in, ex in excess of $6 billion. So we have pivoted and scaled the company you know, significantly. And I've been so fortunate to be part of that journey and that, and that ride and, and um, to see uh, the benefits to so many that have occurred that, uh, with regard to people that have invested with us. So, but I, one of the key breakthroughs was in the early 2000s when the tech wreck hit and the NASDAQ dropped 80%, we were heavily invested in these tech-oriented markets, believing that knowledge-based workers were the future of the country. You know, we wanted to go where there was a pro-business environment, well-educated workforce, where people could have a quality of life and the smart, intelligent people that could do the techie things would want to live like Denver, where you are. Unfortunately, those markets got hit really hard when venture capital dried up, the NASDAQ dropped 80%. And then everyone was able to start buying homes as interest rates dropped and the mortgage market started to loosen up. So what our problem was, we owned these, what we thought were great properties and what we thought were great areas. And it happened to be the case, but that, but that would be a longer term realization of that. But we had these fixed rate loans where the, the rates were seven or 8% and the, rates had dropped to maybe four or five or 6%, but we couldn't get out of these loans if we had been able to, and I'll tell you why we couldn't, we could have refinanced, lowered our debt service, and then been able to make up for the shortfall in the revenues and being able to not have to feed properties uh, to support them when they had negative cash flow. And we couldn't get out of these loans because they had prepayment penalties that were extremely costly. And that's a very common feature in commercial and real estate, which includes apartments, but not common in the home loan market. People refinance all the time. They don't pay penalties. In the commercial market, lenders do not want to get their money back early because they plan on having their money out for a long period of time at a certain rate of interest. So if they get it back early and they have to reinvest those dollars at a lower interest rate, they want to be compensated for that which makes it extremely costly for borrowers like us to get out of those loans. So we can get out of those loans. So that really bothered me. I'm like, there's a line in the movie, uh, Dirty Dancy, where it says, uh, nobody, pay, no, nobody puts baby in the corner 
or in a corner. <laughs> and I'm like, I never want to be put in that corner again. So the way to get out of that corner was to get uh, access financing that didn't have those prepayment penalties. And these were floating rate, variable rate loans. And so most people don't do that, uh, finance their properties using floating rate loans because they're fearful, hey, I'm going to own this property for a long, long time. And it rates, what if they go higher and I can't afford the debt service and I have to sell the property at a loss or I have to give it back to the bank? Very understandable concern, especially what happened in the early 80s when interest rates went to 17% or 18%. But um, I think Schopenhauer said that uh, genius is something like, it, it, basically it's looking at what everyone else is looking at. It's not seeing something different, it's thinking differently about that which everyone sees. So everyone was doing fixed rate loans and the problem was I was look, they were looking at that as an asset and as a benefit, and I was looking at it as a liability. So I was thinking about it differently than most people. So I said, how do we shift this to our benefit? So I studied floating interest rates. I like to say I have three children, my son, my daughter, and LIBOR. And LIBOR is the index that most floating rate loans are based on. And I went to town and I started thinking about it and studying it. And then we tested it out by borrowing using floating rate loans. And then we did a few more. And then I did more research. And then it became uh, pretty clear to me. Eventually I have these aha moments where I get clarity. And then with enough clarity, I have conviction. And then I get courage. Courage to take the action to act on my conviction and clarity. And this was, we need to go all in on floating rate loans. So we have. And so what happened was for us, it really came out to our benefit most recently when we have retooled our portfolio over the last 10 years or so, such that about 83% of our loans are floating rate. And so when COVID hit, and we were worried about the impact on our apartment portfolio about whether people would pay their rents or not. We ended up at all of a sudden done our operating income, which is basically our revenue and our rents minus the expenses of our properties dropped about 5% during COVID, which wasn't bad in the whole scheme of things, but our cash flow went up about 50%. And that's because our floating rate debt was the huge contributor because that cost dropped. So we always say at CWS, we wanna be on offense when everyone else was on defense. And this was a time where during COVID, we were able to prosper, able to keep our properties in good condition because we had the cash flow to keep investing in them. We were able to generate returns for our investors that were surprisingly good for them. They really couldn't believe it. And as a result, we've been able to build up confidence and grow our platform and our portfolio. And really it can go back, some of that can go back to the insights uh, that not just me, but collectively uh, we were able to, um, I mean, the intellectual genesis of, of it might've been from me, but I have to give credit to my partners to, for listening and having faith and courage to actually act on it. So that over time, even though it was sort of intuitively not obvious to them or didn't always feel right as we delved into it more and more 
and had greater and greater experience with it, they they were getting it. And we we're all collectively in this together. So, so it it really was a powerful combination of a great partnership that has had made that made that work. I was kind of long winded, but uh, it, it it was an important insight. Well, I, I I mean, I can just tell how passionate you you got talking. I mean, not that you weren't prior in the conversation, but uh, just like the the road and the the effort to study something, the floating rate, you know, and how that making those decisions years ago put you in a position to, you know, be on offense is when everyone else was in defense and how you you were looking at um, your industry a little bit differently. And so, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting when it goes back to that, like intuition, you know, how do you develop that? Like you, you really brought in like a lot of diverse range of perspectives and it seemed to benefit you to really understand how to lock into something uh, and lock into it in the right direction opposed to the wrong direction. So it's just interesting being someone who's, you know, 28, right. Who probably the beginnings of my career versus you, you know, like your approach, your approach to decision-making, which I always find so fascinating. I'm, I'm sure you follow um, like Farnham street, maybe or mm-hmm. Shane Harish. Yeah. yeah. So I always just think it's so interesting, but you really bring in a collective uh, study of, of uh, different variables. To, and it's just fascinating. And it's so cool to see how you've, like you said, you saw apartments and you saw the future, you know, before the future was um, in front of your eyes. So yeah, what a testament to you and just like your, your conviction, your clarity, conviction, and courage uh, formula. Gary, I know we have a few minutes left here. I, I want to give you an opportunity to, um, just plug, I know you wrote a book and it seems like a very introspective book on different lessons and also, you know, there's some pragmatic approaches as well. We'd love for you to maybe share what compelled you to write the book and the message in it, you know, if anyone was to pick it up, I want you to be able to share about what brought you to writing it. And, uh, you know, I know you write still to this day, which is great, but uh, the floor is yours here on this. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, the book is called The Philosophical Investor Transforming Wisdom into Wealth. And wealth encompasses um, far beyond the financial realm. To me, it's just having um, just a deep reservoir of resources that can allow you to you know, recover when challenges in life materialize, which they inevitably will, and take advantage of opportunity and to be able to hopefully find your purpose and, and live it out. And so I had been writing a lot over the years for our investors. I started writing fairly regularly, I think going back to maybe 1999, and I would write a quarterly article. And so I had I had a lot of that material written and we would write annual reports. And so I just, I felt like we had a very interesting story to tell. It was, um, you know, almost, well, which has now become a 50-year-old firm, 52 years old. So I thought that was compelling. The journey from, you know, just this sort of know-nothing college graduate, poli-sci major, who's given this, you know, stumbles into this job and then tries to figure out his way. And and then some of the personal stories of some of the lessons learned, things to avoid in life and things that... um, catapulted our life uh, forward in a very meaningful and satisfying way. It books not for everybody, but it has something in it for everybody. So it's a bit of a marrying of the left brain and right brain in a way that hopefully your outcomes in life 
will make it much more satisfying and uh, fulfilling uh, financially or relationship-wise, uh, just uh, the, the experiences you have or choose to have or the directions you go. Because I, you know, I have an analytical side, then I have this uh, right brain uh, philosophical side that I love to learn, love ideas, and I love to synthesize. I love the idea of skill stacking. There's a lot of people who are great at one skill. There are some people who are, have two skills are really good at, but boy, if you can maybe add a third skill to that, you can really make yourself uh, invaluable. So I went, um, so I've got that kind of political science, right brain side that was unusual for the firm. Then I got a CFA, which is much more common in the investment management stocks and bonds world. And then I could do financial analysis. So I, and be able to put this in a way where hopefully I could synthesize um, ideas that there could be some breakthrough insights and communicate them to our investors and uh, potential capital sources. And so the target market uh, or positioning of this book was to be a luxury brand targeting deep pockets and deep thinkers. So ideally, uh, they would be both. You know, they would be uh, deep pocket. They'd, they'd be deep pockets and deep thinkers. And if they didn't have the deep pockets, maybe they would represent deep pockets. And if they didn't have access to deep pockets or weren't deep pockets, they're just deep thinkers and we're curious minds and would find it interesting. So, and then I, I, I continue to write our weekly blog. I do this, it just helps clear my mind. Uh, that's another thing is like, sometimes I don't know what I think until I write it. <laughs> and then uh, maybe out of there, uh, some insights uh, will gather. But part of it is uh, a lot of the blog also helps me stay the course as we talked about earlier. Gives me more conviction that, hey, I think we're okay. We don't have to pivot here radically. And uh, sometimes doing nothing can be the best course of action. Hmm. You know, I, I love I love that. You know, I I, uh, I identify very right brained business partners, very left brain yet can be right brain and synthesize well. I and mean, that's why it's a great marriage. But I think what's so interesting about you is clear, very evident that you have the left brain and the right brain, and like you don't often come across, I think, a healthy balance right in humanity. So. Um, very interesting. Uh, it's, it's been awesome, awesome talking, uh, learning about you, having you share your journey. So insightful. Gary, if someone wanted to reach out or find you or ping you somewhere just to, you know, check in or, just, you know, say, I listen to this, uh, where, where would be the best place to leave a note? Yeah, well, so my blog is GaryCarmel.com. G-A-R-Y-C-A-R-M-E-L-L.com. There are two L's. And then, so if someone wanted to leave a message there, that, that would get to me. And then our company web, website is cwscapital.com. And just, you know, if you want to learn more about the firm, but no, I appreciate the invitation. I don't do many of these. If this had been, I think I told you this before, but had been, hey, how do you make money in real estate or you know, how did you do it? That that has no interest to me. But to me, making money in real estate is, is a byproduct of so many other things, most of which we, or some of which we've talked about. So that's more that I, I'm interested in is what's beneath the surface. You know, yeah. you want to avoid the icebergs and you want to find the, you know, clear path to the direction you want to go. So 
Well, thank you for your holistic life perspectives that have driven your, sounds like smart decisions. Uh, and uh, look forward to staying in touch. Likewise, thank you. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I hope you leave a review on the platform of your choice and share it with a friend who you think would find it valuable. If you'd like to receive a written newsletter and thought leadership, head on over to bwmissions.com backslash newsletter and subscribe. See you on the next show.